This is episode 154 of the Relate Podcast on developing deeper awareness of diversity with Jamie Delgado. We are spending more and more time in the online world, looking through our screens and increasingly disconnected with those around us. But studies have proven that it's real-life meaningful relationships that bring us the most joy and happiness. It's all about human connection and conversing with people from a variety of backgrounds. Worlds change when eyes meet. So let's sit down and relate. I am your host, Patrick McAndrew, and welcome to yet another episode of the Relate Podcast. Thank you, as always, for joining me on this show where we are talking about the importance of human connection, of relating to one another, of meeting people from diverse backgrounds and walks of life and finding commonalities. Today's episode, we really dive deep into this topic. I'm very excited for today's guest. Their name is Jamie Delgado, and Jamie is an experienced clinical social worker, educator, and SEED facilitator. That SEED, it stands for Seeking Educational equity, and diversity. They specialize in anti-oppression and conflict management skill building in clinical and educational settings, and they have a background in systemic oppression work and have experience coaching adults and adolescents through restorative processes following conflict. Jamie is really coming at this conversation with a wealth of experience, both personal and professional. In this episode, we talk about Jamie as a person, their identity when they were growing up as a woman, and how they discovered their queer identity. We talk about how fear plays a huge factor and how really that's the main trigger into why people feel the need to oppress others, why they feel the need to oppress people who may be different from themselves. We talk about people being afraid of losing power and resources. We talk about some of the systemic issues of oppression that are within our society. Jamie also discusses why sometimes we feel like in society we need to hide parts of ourselves, especially in the professional world. Jamie discusses why it's important to know yourself the best possible way that you can, how you must stick to who you are because in doing this, in knowing your best self, you will then be more prepared to approach conversations in an open and approachable manner. Jamie says how it's really important as a society that we need to build and develop skills in dialogue to start having conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and to really just expose ourselves to new types of conversations, new language that should be part of the mainstream. If you like this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts. Let us know your thoughts. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and how it relates to you and the relationships that you have in your life. So without further ado, let me please introduce today's guest of Relate, Jamie Delgado.
Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Relate Podcast. Today, our guest is Jamie Delgado. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with you. We had the opportunity to get connected via Alexandria Bellavan, who is a past guest on this podcast. And I know that you do a lot of work uh, with the Actors Fund specifically. Uh, but today, I'm, I'm really interested to delve into your work as a uh, clinical social worker. I know you also work as an educator and facil facilitator. You do, you're doing a lot of great work in a space that conversations are really being brought to awareness within our world and society today. And I think it very much relates to what we talk about in the Relate podcast regarding how we form deeper and more meaningful connections and relationships with one another. So I'm excited to dive in. Um, so am I. I'm very excited. Where do you want to start? Yeah, perhaps uh, for those of our listeners who are just getting acquainted with, with who you are, I'm wondering if you could share with us maybe just a little bit about your background and, and what led you to pursue a career in clinical social work. Okay, well, uh, today is Transgender Day of Visibility, so I think it's important to note that I am transgender. I was assigned female at birth. I identify as a non-binary trans masculine person. I'm queer. I'm gender queer. I'm polyamorous. I have two spouses. I have three children. Two of them are cisgender. One is transgender. And... I decided to become a clinical social social worker after uh, years as an actor, and I had a job touring through the United States for children's theater tour, and we toured a lot of schools. And um, there was there was a large disparity in uh, resources and various schools uh, from state to state and community to community and I left that tour deciding that I wanted to do something with my life uh, that more directly assisted other humans. So I went to get my master's degree in social work and I worked in foster care for three years, high-risk foster care in Connecticut and I became a bit disillusioned with how we were caring for children. They were highly medicated. And I started to have my own children and was very concerned about them. So I stumbled onto uh, Waldorf education, which is an alternative sort of educational model, and sort of found myself in their teacher training um, program accidentally as I was just looking for resources and wanting to find out how we could really meet children um, and and each other as adults better. And I did uh, um, over a decade teaching elementary school uh, in, in Waldorf schools. Throughout all of these uh, career changes and all of these journeys, I kept facing the same challenges, uh, which, you know, were, were mostly around oppression and erasure of uh, various identities that I had, that my children had, and sometimes aggressive harassment of queer students, uh, definitely 
uh, black students, brown students, indigenous cultures were entirely appropriated and uh, or erased. Uh, the entire model was was very colonial in nature. So I started doing a lot of advocacy and a lot of work within the schooling systems to bring conversations about this. Um, and I got some training uh, as an equity facilitator. I used my clinical social work skills to do moderation, mediation, education, and then eventually sort of hit a roadblock with other colleagues that the educational paradigm we were working in just was not allowing for change at the rate that we needed to, to even function. Um, so we broke out and we started a collective to help mentor other people within that educational paradigm who were trying to do the same work. And now we've expanded far outside of education and we facilitate conversations with pretty much any group of people or any individual that just wants to learn how to engage better as human beings and how to learn about uh, culture and language and uh, restitution and accountability. So I've worked with, recently I worked with a restaurant group in Copenhagen and, you know, an optometrist in uh, Indiana. I'm still working with a lot of um, people in the educational communities, um, both Waldorf and public and other alternative um, models. And it's just kind of organically grown to sort of fill up every part of my life. It's uh, really exciting to, to hear about this work a lot, because I think that, you know, there, as I mentioned before, there's definitely growing awareness to, uh, you know, for example, trans rights and, and just having a, a more diverse population within the conversation of how things are done, you know, in, in your case, uh, education specifically. And I'm curious, just from, from your experience, if you don't mind sharing, why do you think it is that, that people, that they, you know, that they are oppressive? Is it that, that they don't quite understand uh, the variety of different terms that, that are becoming more prominent in our vocabulary? Is it, is it this ignorance? Is it, or is it that you know, people fear someone who's different from themselves? What have you found that has caused people to act out in this way? I think fear seems to be uh, the main reason. There, there are a lot of different ways in which this fear presents itself in either groups of people or individuals. But when you start peeling away, you know, the onion skin and, and all the layers, you get to a point where you discover that a person or a group of people are afraid of something. And usually I find that they're afraid of losing something. And oftentimes that's power or social capital. Um, and sometimes it is actually physical, tangible resources. Um, but there is a sense that there's only so much resource in our culture and that if we give away anything to anyone that we will be lacking. And, and, and that seems to be what, what's at the base of it. I also think that human beings as individuals can definitely display oppressive behaviors, but it is the systems that we're working in 
that that create oppression. And I firmly believe individuals should be held accountable when they cause harm. However, I think we waste a lot of time picking out individuals, particularly about things uh, such as language and, and having the most up-to-date language. I'm trans. Obviously, to me, language is quite uh, important. People will use language, the wrong language, to cause harm to me regularly. Um, so I'm not saying language isn't important, but I'm saying sometimes when we get so hyper-focused on language and individuals and the language that they use or don't use, we're really missing the larger systemic issues uh, that we should be challenging. Uh, one individual can't be held accountable for the entire system. Um, and a lot of times in targeted communities, we target each other. So in the queer community, there's so much infighting. You know, I, I circle in, in mixed race communities as well. And my gender and my ethnic and racial identities are very connected to one another. And there's also a lot of infighting in those communities. I'm also neurodivergent. And in those communities, there's a lot of inviting. And I don't think it's healthy. I think it's dehumanizing. I'm not going to, you know, say that I have the answers or I am any better, but I am going to say that something needs to change and that this is not the way to liberate ourselves or our comrades. Yeah, yeah, I think you, you really bring up some important points that I, I think when we approach people uh, of, you know, all different types, uh, you know, whatever that may mean is that uh, we're, we're opening conversations and, and keeping them open for, for fluid conversations and, and really building relationships from those as well. We have a lot of people who tune into the Relate podcast primarily for this reason, that they're really looking for ways in which they can connect on deeper levels with people. And at the beginning of our conversation, uh, you were kind enough to explain kind of who you are as a person and as in your identity. There's people who tune into this show who are aware of these various terms that are now becoming part of our mainstream language. But there's also people who are tuning in who may be encountering this language for the first time, perhaps even while listening to this episode. So I'm wondering if, uh, and I know that there is obviously a lot of complexities in this, but I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners what some of these terms might mean as, as it relates to, to uh, gender. And then I also know you talked about uh, uh, was it neurodivergent, you said? Was that the term? Yeah. I mean, I personally yeah. like the word neurodefiant. I'm very proud of the way my brain works. Yeah. So maybe maybe you could just uh, explain these terms uh, a little bit uh, for for those who are listening who are approaching this episode with an open mind, but just might not be familiar uh, with these concepts. Yeah. So I, I like the term gender queer for myself. I don't like binary terms. Um, I don't, for me, believe that binary terms are appropriate. I was assigned female at birth. I was socialized as a girl and a woman in this United States culture. And that is important to who I am and how I've developed. I did, did not feel comfortable 
with the language and presentation that's commonly expected of women in this culture. And I slowly began to change my presentation and then through the changing of my presentation determined that I really did not identify as a woman that was not correct for me. And I, you know, just let people know. You know, I didn't actually just let people know. What actually happened was I was teaching an incredibly bright group of eighth grade children about uh, health and human fertility and um, relationships, which is uh, something I, I teach and I love teaching. And a really special and bright young woman asked me if they were using the the pronouns that I really wanted. And I had to answer her honestly and say that no one had asked me in our school before, but that I didn't want to use she, her pronouns. I felt much more comfortable with they, them pronouns. And it was that group of eighth grade children that made sure that that school knew that. Wow. And I will always be grateful for them. And I'm not sure if they'll ever know that. So it was, it was children that gave me the safety to come out in a group of adults that were actually perpetually harassing me and um, horrible. It was a horrible situation. So when they say listen to the children, I'd, I'd, I'd have to support that wholeheartedly. But when that happened, there was really no going back. And that, that was it. And I was on my journey. And on the journey, I, I, dis I decided that I wanted some medical interventions. And I did have um, top surgery. So I've had a double mastectomy to help me feel more comfortable in my body and with my body. And I do take hormone replacement therapy. So I have low-dose testosterone. Not all transgender people um, make these choices. They're not required to be transgender, to be considered transgender, um, to identify as transgender. Um, that's just my particular journey. But I don't like being um, treated like... I haven't been socialized as a woman, woman for 40 years out of my 42 years on this earth. It's been very interesting to me in, in this process <laughs> to uh, be treated like a woman straight up until I got that surgery. And when I got that surgery, suddenly something switched. So whereas I would be able to tell another woman that I thought she was pretty or cute or, or be playful, suddenly uh, there was a switch. And if I was read as a man or a masculine person, the response wouldn't be friendly and it would be assumed that I was trying to um, uh, sexually, uh, you know, uh, sort of engage uh, with a woman. And that was so surprising to me. I I, uh, first of all, I don't really um, engage romantically or sexually with, with people, definitely not strangers. So when I'm engaging with a person, um, that's just for me. I'm uh, Again, my story, and there's no problem with other people who do that. So for me, it was just shocking because I'd been socialized, you know, to hate other women, particularly women that may be competing uh, with you for, for a love interest. And it's something I've always worked hard against to um, lift and build up other women and tell them they're beautiful and, and you know, be very playful and joyful with women in my life because women are absolutely encouraged to tear each other down. It's, it's part of our, you know, 
very painful, oppressive system of patriarchy and misogyny that we internalize. And now um, that isn't received the same way. And uh, in this process, I'll hear people saying, well, you chose to be a man. And I'm like, no, I, I've chose to just be myself. But suddenly I don't have breasts. And that means I'm not allowed to be soft and gentle and playful. And that is a horrifying feeling. I've had 40 years of my socialization just erased because I've changed my body. But I'm no different. Wow. I'm no different than I ever was. I think there's deep pain in that. Um, I also acknowledge there is some privilege in some areas with being masculine presenting. Um, I feel much safer in some settings uh, if someone's far enough away not to be able to clock that I'm genderqueer. But mostly I'm clocked as genderqueer and there's never safety, ever safety. Even in queer communities, there's not safety in that. So I've been thinking a lot about communication around language and expectations and identity and the boxes that we get put in and just what's happened in me deciding to change my body and the way that society, particularly cisgender women, are treating me um, with somewhat with disdain and uh, sort of exclusion. And uh, I don't quite understand it yet. I, I do understand that there's deep feelings there and they're feelings that I actually share because of those 40 years of being socialized as a woman, but I can't possibly fathom any health or wellness coming out of popping people in boxes because of the way they look. And then I think about children and I think about the fact that we do this to children in our culture and it's really concerning. So that that's a really long and deep explanation of, of my experience as being genderqueer. Being neurodivergent, I have ADHD, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, sensory processing disorder, and I'm likely um, autistic, but it's very difficult to get uh, those assessments as an adult. But I present in, in many, many of the, the ways uh, that a uh, person assigned female at birth who is autistic would present. So saying I'm neurodivergent is much easier for me, just like saying I'm genderqueer or queer is much easier because I, I have so many identities underneath these umbrellas. So my brain does work differently and so does my body. Um, I'm very sensitive to light. I have photophobia, which means that any bright light can actually make me sick or make me nauseous. I am sensitive to noises. I can get really overwhelmed with a lot of movement around me. Strangely, it is assumed that people with my forms of neurodivergence um, are not socially nuanced or, you know, socially skilled, I guess. I think that that applies to me in some cases. And in other cases, it doesn't. I am a clinical social worker. I actually think I'm quite good at what I do. And I think that there's some stigma and some misunderstandings about neurodivergence. What I actually think happens, at least for me, and I think others that present the way I do, is that we have a sort of blunt, simple uh, way of using language and explaining things. And we're in a society where that isn't always valued, that in order to be polite or professional, you are expected to hide things, including parts of yourself. And because 
hiding things and using euphemisms are valued, those of us who either don't find that language or that way of communicating accessible or easy for us are assumed not to be socially nuanced or professional or sometimes even kind, which is really difficult and ironic that one would think uh, people who communicate with like direct, simple language are considered poor at communication <laughs> and those who don't actually say what they want and, and sort of cloud it in all sorts of other language are better at communication. So that's that's an interesting thing to live through, to experience on the daily and to know that you're being judged for. And the whole concept of professionalism, too, is very much rooted in patriarchy and whiteness, actually. And, and you know, culturally, not everybody considers those types of behaviors to be professional, to be kind, to be socially appropriate. They feel like lying to me. And so I never think lying is socially appropriate, professional, kind, you know, in most situations anyway. Uh, so a lot of times you live your life kind of having to learn the rules of something that feels uh, innately inhuman. But we do it and we survive and succeed and sometimes thrive in, in the face of these systems that just aren't built for us. Yeah, you, you brought up so many good points that, you know, for, for our listeners tuning in, I, I hope are really taking to heart that, uh, and it, you know, it's a reminder to me how important it is to have these type of conversations so that we could bring awareness to this vocabulary into the mainstream and to, to, to try to really push it into the mainstream as much as possible so that people could really develop a deeper understanding that, oh, okay, this, you know, there's a whole variety of different types of people out there that maybe outside what we consider the quote unquote norm of, of uh, you know, our, our society, society today and why it's so important to recognize these differences and to recognize that everybody deserves to have rights. And, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing just kind of the, these struggles that, that you have gone through, the, this oppression that, that you face in your, your day-to-day -day life and, you know, I, I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying before is that people, for whatever reason, are rooted in this fear of, quote unquote, the other, the, that someone they encounter someone who's different from them themselves. And for whatever reason that they feel threatened by that. And for our, our listeners who are who are tuning in today, you know, might might have been unfamiliar with these terms that you were just describing is the best way to combat that that fear through education, through learning about these different lifestyles, perspectives, and or you know whether it's through reading or or through taking workshops, is that really like the the best way for for people to learn more about about uh, diversity and equity and inclusion? It can be, and this is coming from a person who, you know, I, I butter my bread at least partially by giving these workshops and, and by offering this education. I'm going to be honest and say sometimes that isn't the best way. Um, sometimes it is. When I am offering an assessment to a client or an organization, I will be very honest if I think that is the best way for them. There's this, this Russian proverb it says, uh, the same hot water that uh, softens 
the potato hardens the egg. Um, oh, I like that. And I, I live by it with everything I do. There's no one way to change the world. Um, we actually need all the ways. There are times where it is absolutely right to be throwing down with someone about language that they have used that is harmful. Absolutely. There are other times where that is not helpful and that argument is actually creating more harm. You have to look at, you know, what you have in your hand and decide what will happen to it when you throw it in the hot water. And do you want to do that? Be mindful about doing it. So there are times where, yes, an educational workshop could be so wonderful for a group of people who are ready to do work. There are other times where an educational workshop or a DEI committee formation, it's not going to work and it's actually going to cause more harm. And that's because the group of people are not ready to do the work or don't have the skills to do the work. Because what often happens is those people of targeted identities who are often erased and abused and oppressed are saddled with the work and they get burnt out because no one's listening to them. Um, this is what happens when we decide, oh, we want to be more diverse, so let's hire people of different cultures and races and sexual identities and gender identities and occasionally abilities because it is my belief that the neurodivergent and disabled community are often <laughs> overlooked in a lot of these uh, considerations. But then they get in the room and the entire culture, again, as I explained before, is just not suited for us. The language isn't accessible to us. The processes by which decisions are made are rooted in uh, punitive colonial mindsets that do not serve human beings. And that causes everyone damage. So oftentimes you have to look at how do we make decisions and who is making decisions. And I usually, I usually find that when a diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice group or professional is hired, that it means that there is something missing in leadership. And a lot of times leaders think that they can educate you know, that whole, like fill it, fill it up just with education and reading books. I often find that there needs to be a switch in leadership in the entire paradigm. So your leadership team has to be ready to throw everything away and start at the beginning or to step down. And this is where you hit that fear level. The people are fearful of losing their job, of becoming irrelevant, of no longer um, being respected in their field. And these things get in the way of us doing what is right for ourselves and each other as human beings. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing, like, just hearing you speak about uh, all these different issues. It's, it's very obvious that our world still has a, a lot of work to do. And, and, and so let, with that said, uh, obviously, there's a, a wide variety of different resources out there, many of which have popped up recently, I feel like. In, in your opinion, given that, that you know, this is really a, a long game, uh, how do you feel that we can uh, overcome systemic uh, oppression or, or at least start to make a dent in systemic oppression and 
and therefore uh, have a, a wider acceptance of that these you know this diverse language and diverse perspectives the most universal thing i can say because once again i'm thinking about potatoes and eggs and hot water um the most universal thing that i think can be applicable to all people regardless of w what organization or group you are in or what you know state you live in or you know, who, who you are and what your positionality is regarding your identities and, and how you float through the world. The one universal thing is to look to yourself first, always, um, and really look at who you are, how you were socialized, what you bring to the table. Look at what you can offer, what resources and social capital you have as well as the areas where you lack social capital and where you need to take up more space. I think if we all know ourselves as best as we possibly can and also know how we fit in different spaces as we move through life, then we will be able to de develop skills to discern, you know, what we want to throw in that boiling water what what we want to harden, what we want to soften and soften. And I, I think that um I think that's the only universal thing that I can say. Because really once you get out there, there are no rules. And the only thing you can stick to is who you are and being ready to be accountable and learning a bunch of different ways to communicate with people. And that includes language styles, uh, actual language itself, nonverbal communication, or written language, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and ask for help. Once you know who you are, you know your strengths, you know your weaknesses, you know what you have to learn, you know what you have. Go find other people that complement you and do the work together. We can't do this as individuals, even though we have to start as individuals. So once you start with yourself, go find other people and do it together. I love that. I, I love what you were saying about really figuring out who we are, the, you know, figuring out who we are as individuals to the best of our ability, because I think so much of that fear that you discussed earlier in our conversation is rooted in these insecurities. And of course, everyone, all humans have insecurities. That's that's natural. But I think if we're able to really discover who we are, it really allows us to be available for for deeper and more meaningful connections and conversations, especially with those who are coming from diverse backgrounds who we as individuals might not have been exposed to or, or socialized to previously. So, you know, w with all of that said, Jamie, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to join me on the Relate podcast today and for not only taking the time, but also being being so open and, and sharing your own both personal and professional experiences when it comes to I identity and, and different forms of diversity, equity and inclusion. These are really important conversations that we need to be having and that we need to be continuing to make more mainstream in, in the greater conversations within society. And so I, I can't thank you enough for really being, uh, you know, a, a, a voice uh, that, that really needs to be uh, heard in, in this conversation. Thank you for giving me space to share. Sharing my story helps me understand myself better as well. 
So it's, you know, a privilege to be able to, to do that and to also get to know you. Where can our listeners find out more information about you and your work, your, you know, your, the, the training, the, the oppression work that you do? Where, where could they find out more about you? Oh, um, let's see. So probably my website for my collective, which is www.waldorfonfire.com. And we're, we're actually just transitioning our website, too, to open it up since we are now uh, doing this type of mentoring work in in all professions now, not just education. So our, our website is, uh, you know, in flux, but it's it's there. It's open, can accept emails and questions, and we're happy to hear from anyone. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include the link to that website in our show notes. So listeners tuning in, all you have to do is scroll down in our show notes, click that link provided, highly recommend checking it out. Jamie, I have one last question for you before we part ways today. Sure. How can we as a society better relate to one another? Oh, I think that we need to build skills in dialogue and having conversations with one another. I think human beings are very nuanced, very gray. We do not live on the binary in, in any way, shape, or form. And so we have to enter into dialogue looking to be changed by the person we're speaking with as opposed to changing them and if we go into these mindsets wanting to learn i think the entire uh, scope and narrative our our engagement will change and open up and we won't be getting stuck in conflict so easily Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relate. You can let me know your thoughts on this episode by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a review. Or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.